Welcome to Incognito the Podcast. I had another outstanding conversation this week that I want to share with you. Willa is someone I have known about for some time now and have tried unsuccessfully to connect with. The good news is <laughs> that we both persisted in nailing down a time to talk, and the result was delightfully engaging and far-ranging. We discussed what it means to just show up as your full self and how that self is a constant work in progress. We also talked about making sacrifices for mutual benefits, code switching, and the importance of sharing a meal. The power in food and story is one for the heart, soul, and of course, stomach. We shared our mutual delight in telling stories and being changed by them, which is what I hope for you as you listen to this episode. Welcome to Incognito the Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Fosberg, and my guest today is Willa J. Taylor, and she is the Walter Director of Education and Engagement at the Goodman Theater. In her 15 seasons, she has created 14 new education and engagement programs, including Intergens, which partners seniors and teens to create original narrative performances that address community concerns, Stage Chemistry, a unique interactive curriculum for students based on science and math concepts on stage, Nourish, which mentors community organizations interested in finding art-based solutions to community-identified problems, and Teaching August Wilson, which develops educators' capacity to use Wilson's American Century Cycle as the lens for American history. She's also adjunct faculty at DePaul University, where she teaches dramaturgy for youth and leads workshops nationally on facilitation, intergenerational organizing, and trauma-informed pedagogy. In addition to the many honors and awards that she's received, she's also a writer and a storyteller who performs nationally. She holds a Master of Fine Arts from American University, Masters of Education from Concordia University, and a culinary degree from Kendall College. Willa Taylor, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you for having me. Yes, I'm so delighted to speak with you. Um, we've been trying to arrange this for months, and I'm, we have. I'm super pleased that you agreed and you're here. And there's so many things in there that I want to talk about, and I don't know if we'll get to all of them in our, in our short time together. But, but one of the things that I do with all my guests is I want to talk about your bio for a number of reasons. Reading that is, is an introduction. People who are listening are hearing that, and they're introduced to you. They're making assumptions now based on what they've heard. It is, to some degree, part of our identities, a portion of our identities. Mm -hmm. It is much more used as a, a listing of professional accomplishments, but it does right. kind of speak to who we are. And I just wondered, after hearing that, <laughs> I mean, you provided it, you've done all those things. <laughs> how would you describe yourself and what identities are core to how you see yourself in the world? Wow. <laughs> I, I am a queer, older Black woman uh, who grew up during segregation and Jim Crow. Uh, so a little bit of history lives in me. Yes. And in relation to my bio, I would say that that work that I try to do professionally mm -hmm. is what my grandmother, my Nana, 
would say is the cost of my privilege. Wow, what a, a stark way to put it. I think that's really powerful. Then that actually, that sort of takes me right into the next question that I want to ask you as being a part of your privilege. Have you ever felt that walking into a room that your identity was an obstacle? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, absolutely. So (laughs) when I first got to Goodman, there were three of us in, in the department. Me, who was newly sort of the education director, an intern and uh, an assistant who was actually leaving, who had sort of just been there until I could come on board. Uh Both of them were white. One was white female, one was white male, and then me. Mm. And we would go to school visits. We would go to other cultural institutions to try and establish relationships. And every single time, everybody talked to the white male, assuming that he was the person in charge. And I would just sit back. It was all, it it never ceased to amaze me how often that happened. And every now and then that still happens, right? And so it is, it is those small things now like that, that I find less onerous than some of the larger ways that my identity was an obstacle walking into a room. When I was younger and, and not, quite, not quite settled in who I was, I think any perceived slight, I always assumed that walking into a room, my color would be an obstacle. Uh, more so than almost anything else, more so than being queer, more so than being a woman. I don't feel that way anymore as much, but I assume that part of what happens when I walk into a room is, especially if I am walking into a room of youth, right? Part of what I want to happen is for me, as I come into that room to allow space for those youth, especially youth of color, to be able to sort of breathe and have some more air. Mm. Uh, and, and so it matters less to me whether my walking into a room, my identity is an obstacle for other people, as long as it's an opportunity for those young people and those people of color to be able to take a full breath. Oh gosh, I have so many questions about this. So first of all, when you first started and the in those situations took place and they <laughs> spoke to the white male, first of all, I'm curious, was he conscious of it? Was he aware of that that was going on, like evident to him? And then secondly, what kinds of conversations did that provoke for you and your team? So Bobby uh, was this really wonderful man that I had an opportunity to really work with for a while. And, and Bobby would always go, uh, no, she's She's in charge. She's the director. Uh, And people would, sometimes people would be apologetic. Not always, right? right? Sometimes they would just continue to talk to Bobby, uh, which was always amazing to me. And of course, we didn't work with those people. So (laughs) (laughs) that was was the revenge that I could have is I don't have to work with you if you don't want to talk to me. Uh, But Bobby was always very gracious around making sure that it was clear that he was not the person in charge. But it took a while for him to sort of recognize the pattern of that. 
that mm. this always happened. Like, you know, one or two times you think, okay, fine. I walked into the room first. He walked in, he shook hands first, whatever it was. And he could sort of find a rationale around it. But after a while, it started to click to him that this was a pattern of behavior that he was seeing in people, especially in men, he would see it. And became, to his credit, uh, started to figure out ways to sort of prevent that from happening from the very beginning. You know, either coming in and saying, I want to introduce you to the director or letting me walk into a room first or just sitting back in a way. And it it was greatly appreciated by me, but it was also, it was, we would always have a great laugh (laughs) after it and then go get donuts. So that was, that was, (laughs) that was always the way that we sort of ended that day. The, The donut reward. The donut reward. Great. I, I, this kind of bleeds into the next question. When this would happen, how did, did you find ways in which you could, could form a bridge that you could help bring that person who um, stumbled terribly mm-hmm. initially? Did you find ways that you could bring that person on board? Now, I know you said uh, the revenge could be that I didn't have to work with them. Right. In some cases, you probably wanted to work with this school or this entity or whatever it might be. And and how did you go about forming a bridge? What ways, what methods, what tools, what practices did you use to bring that person over to your side of the shore? Uh, So sometimes, yes, we could find a bridge. And most often it was really a simple mistake. You know, we're all socialized to sort of talk to the white man in the room, right? Right. And so sometimes once it was clear that Bobby was not the person in charge and people started to talk, usually people would be apologetic and then the tenor would change. There were some people who would not do that. Right. uh, And who could not sort of make that bridge. And, And to your point, I still needed to work with them. And part of the hardest thing for me has been to recognize and sublimate my ego (laughs) that if I am making an alliance or a partnership, it is because there is some mutual benefit for us, mutual benefit for the people that we serve, mutual benefit for the institution. And I need to get out of the way of that. If what is stopping that from happening, then perhaps I need to just move out of that way so it can happen. So sometimes it has meant that I have then not been the point person Mm. on that project, if that needed to happen. Sometimes it is just that I have to keep reminding myself that this is for the kids, this is for our seniors, this is for whatever, especially when there's a power dynamic, right? Uh, yes. in, in particular around funding, mm-hmm. right? When you are working with funders who have the power really to, to make a Baker program because they'll either sign the check or not. And that has been some of the most difficult work. Mm. And I, I actually want to come back to this because this is a bigger conversation, I think. But uh, you mentioned earlier about you, you don't feel that way anymore about your, about your identity. I guess I, I'm, I'm maybe I'm paraphrasing here, but what I'm getting is that you are very comfortable with who you are, what you are, and how you yeah. into a room. Yeah, that's right. Uh, 
Right. Yes. Okay. So. And that's hard. Uh, I'd say that that's hard learned and yeah. hard won. Yeah. And you've created these programs that you listed here in your bio, just, just wonderful partnerships with these different um, disparate groups. And so bringing your full self into the room and not having as much concern about how that plays because you're comfortable with who you are. How did you go about getting these groups of people, whether it were seniors and teens or other groups, how did you get them to go about working with one another, talking to one another, collaborating with one another? You know, the when f- the former president okay. <laughs> was elected, yeah, it, it, it really felt like a funeral at work the uh, next day, right? We are uh, certainly not exclusively, but I think our, our industry leans left, yeah. uh, most people, and it we were all devastated. And we had youth in our programs who were just, they couldn't believe it. Often I, when I work with youth, I forget about the huge age difference (laughs) between us, right? And I really had not recognized the fact that the only president most of them had ever known was Barack Obama. That's right. And so then to have him elected really felt like a betrayal to them. And for many of them too, it was the first time that they had ever voted in an election. Right. So they were doubly disheartened. So the kids just sort of started showing up at the theater because they felt it was a safe space because they knew that we would open the door and we would just hang out. They came and I ordered a whole bunch of pizzas and I called a bunch of our seniors that we were working with and said, listen, can you just come down to the theater? And they showed up just to talk, Mm. just to be there. Right. For, for these kids that they didn't know, some of them hadn't, they hadn't worked with, but what they came with was perspective. So Terry, uh, who is one of our storytellers in generation told about what it was like to be a protester in 68 at the democratic national convention when the Papa daily Yes. The original daily. Yes. Sit the mounted police on the protesters and were bludgeoning them in the park. And Simone talked about what devastation she felt when Nixon got elected. You know, and our, our Jens folks started telling these stories which are really stories of survival and resilience, right? Right. That no matter how bad it seems, there was a way out. And the young people started moving from despair to anger and determination. Wow. Because they, they recognized that there were people who had lived through something just as horrible, if not worse, and had made it, but also that they were still fighting. And they were not willing to just sort of cede the country because of this horrible moment that they were in. And so they they got energized. And by the end of the pizza, (laughs) they were trying to figure out, so what's our next step? 
what do we do next? As opposed to, I got to get out of here. I hate everybody the way that they had come in. And that to me is sort of the perfect example of what happens when you can get disparate groups of people mm-hmm. together, right? When they share, when we share stories, I, I, I can't overemphasize how much I think stories and storytelling is such an important way of how we connect and get to know not just ourselves, but each other, right? So yeah. these people told their stories, the young people heard them, needed those stories in that moment, and they were changed by them. Yeah. And that's, that's the essence of the work. Yes. The theme listeners is storytelling. Mm, yeah. <laughs> storytelling here. I want to ask you if you could talk about a particular challenging situation that you found yourself in that required unifying efforts on your part and how you overcame that challenge. It may be you know, a storytelling situation again, as you just um, shared with us, but maybe it's a different thing that comes to mind. I'll tell two. One that's sort of a professional institutional story, and then yes. and one that's a little more personal. The personal one. Uh, we were doing some work with a group of women who were returning from incarceration. Mm. Uh, we were doing storytelling work with them. We had been asked to partner with an organization to help them be able to relate their stories as a way of then advocating going to uh, Springfield to the state legislature to advocate on behalf of incarcerated mothers. Wow. And we've been doing that work for uh, six, eight weeks. We've gotten to know the women and become really close to them. And it was not a program that cost us really any money because Bobby and I did it as part of staff. So we didn't have to really hire anybody, but they cut the funding for that program Mm. on on their side. So on the organization side, because it didn't seem valuable. Well, for a lot of reasons. I mean, the organization was having financial issues anyway, but this was a service that was easier to cut than some of the direct service that they offered. And there was nothing that I could do about that. There was nothing, there was, there was no one that I advocated to on our board There was no one that I went to who was already one of our funders who saw the value of these women's lives and the value of them telling those stories. And so there was nothing that I could do to sort of help save that program. And that was one of the most helpless times that I've felt. You know, we talk all the time about the importance of the arts and, and what the arts can do. And it felt really like all of that was just, just piffle. Yeah. The other time was uh, when I worked at Lincoln Center Theater in, in New York and worked with students in, in schools around the, in all five boroughs. And there was a, at the time, uh, a wonderful man named Michael Kahn, who was both the head of 
the Folger Shakespeare Theater in DC, which is how I originally knew him, but he was also the head of the acting program at Juilliard. Michael and I had been talking about sort of how do we identify, he, he was very interested in making sure that the incoming classes of actors at Juilliard was more diverse than it had been. And how do you sort of create a pipeline for that, especially for students in the New York City area. Mm-hmm. And so we had set up a couple of masterclasses, if you will, for uh, students that we have worked with. Here's some text analysis. This is how you create a character with actors that we knew that were in our wheelhouse. And there was one student from school in the Bronx who I have to say was the most naturally gifted mimic Mm. I have ever seen. (laughs) She was 16 at the time. And you could give her a prompt and she was off. And she could, if you gave her a character or an actor, she could do it. She, she reminded me a lot of, there was a guy who used to do impersonations, can't think of his name, who was always on like the Ed Sullivan show and was very quick. And that's what she reminded me of. She was just wonderfully talented. Wow. And even though she was only a junior at the time, Michael gave her an audition and was willing to offer her a full ride when she graduated to come to Juilliard because he saw that much potential in her. And we were thrilled, right? I mean, this kid from the Bronx who had never, she had never even heard of Juilliard, right? Before this happened. And her parents said no. She was the only one in the family who spoke English well enough to navigate all of the bills and the negotiations and the apartment and the living of what it means for an immigrant family. And she dropped out of school. And it killed me. It killed me. And that's that's actually one of the reasons why I left. I, I quit. I, I left I left Lincoln Center and I left theater for a while after that because if the world is su- such a way that a kid that is that talented cannot have the possibility of this bigger opportunity right because the social safety net that we've set up is so broken right then what good is just giving a kid an experience in theater why give her that taste of that and then not have her be able to sort of eat that whole meal, right? Yeah. That was one of the most devastating experiences I think I've ever had. So disheartening. What about a situation that you thought was going in that direction in which you were able to uh, turn it around completely? I didn't turn it around, but I watched it turn around. There was a kid who had been in, like, when I first got to to Goodman, probably the first or second summer that I was there, there was a young man who was in our program who was a cut up, you know, I mean, he was, he was, he he was that kid that uses humor, like to deflect, and he was always in trouble, he was always late all these things, right? Uh And, And didn't really seem, frankly, that engaged in the work. And I ran into him like three or four years later. I'm standing in line at a supermarket 
And he comes up to me and he says, you're at the Goodman, right? And I, I'm like, yeah. He says, you probably don't remember me because you've grown yeah. and it's huge and it looks very different. And he tells me who he is. And he says, you know, I just want to tell you what that program meant to me. Uh, that it led to my being able to get a job that led to my being able to sort of get married and support my young daughter. I mean, he just went into this thing and I, I'm like, I mean, you know, it's a summer theater program. Like, so how did, uh, what's the relation for you? And he said, even though I was a screw up, you all never gave up on me. You always thought that there was something valuable in me. And that's what made the difference. Wow. And that had nothing to do with us. I mean, he found that in himself, right? Well, we just created a nurturing environment that allowed him to find that. I, I'm going to play the devil's advocate here, if that's what it's called. But people like us in positions like that we've been in, whether it's been a teaching artist or working with young people, can make a very strong impression. And, and not only that, but create a space for them to feel heard, to yeah. feel that they belong to feel that they actually have their feet on the ground. Yeah. And I That's think true. you do that with the work that you do, these programs that you talk about here. I just think that don't discount the work that you did, that you do, that makes an impression. I think it's really powerful. Those stories are fantastic. So how do, so my question is then how do we do that for the rest of the world? Well, right. I mean, no. I mean, <laughs> I'm the interviewer. <laughs> and, and when, well, there's a, I'm so glad you said that because <laughs> the next question is in relationship to that in many ways. It's how you go about forging new connections with people in your workplace and outside within your community. What are the methods, the techniques, the approaches, the habits? or the rules that you abide by. Now I know storytelling is, is at the top of the page, Yeah. but are there other things that you use to connect with people? So one of the things I do is just try to show up, right? Show up more as Willa, not as Willa representative of Goodman, uh -huh. right? We're a large, old, white, <laughs> institution right <laughs> we will be a hundred years old yes. in two seasons yes uh we're one of the largest not-for-profit theaters in the country right and we have not always in that hundred years been as inclusive as we are trying to be right now mm. and people have long memories right when i first got the job i heard a lot of that about sort of what goodman had not done so we have some bridges to build. And one of the ways that I try to do that is by, I just show up. So I show up for the basketball game or I show up for the giving of certificates and trophies to the third grade class, or I show up so that you recognize that I'm showing up, not because I'm coming here to ask you for something, but I'm just showing up to come here to support what you're always doing. Another way that I try to do that is, and I've, I've really tried to make this an ethic of our department, is 
we never go into a community unless we are invited. And we also, not only do we not go into a community unless we're invited, we also don't go into a community to say, here's what I can give you. Mm. When we go in, we say, what do you need? And then we try to figure out how to match that, right? Because certainly communities of color and certainly communities who have been chronically disinvested in have no reason to trust us as an institution. Um, And you have to, you know, you have to walk the walk before they're willing to sort of even extend the opportunity to partner sometimes. That's something that I'm struggling with right now is how I really want to do more work with both people who are incarcerated and returning citizens. And we're not getting any traction with that because we haven't been there in that work, in that community, in any kind of significant way. And so it's a lot of just showing up, just showing up, just showing up, just showing up right now. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's something thinking about sort of challenges and struggles in this work. That's something that is difficult for people to understand. Funders, certainly, it's difficult for funders to understand, but also people who don't do community work that sometimes you show up for three years often before anything can happen. And that is the process of the work, right? Because a part of that is the establishment of trust. And in this environment where funders are looking for immediate results uh, and impact to say that I just showed up for, (laughs) for the basketball game because I could is not reason enough, right? And they don't, they don't really understand that in a way. And so it makes it challenging when you're thinking about especially disinvested communities and communities who have been traditionally marginalized by large institutions and by funding by the philanthropic community. Right. It's a longer gestation period. Yeah. said to to build that trust is not Mm -hmm. something that you click. It's not a switch. You can't turn that on and off. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I know we're beating the storytelling (laughs) um, horse here, so to speak, but I want to ask you if there is one thing that you could recommend to, to listeners that could act as a catalyst for more inclusive society? Now, this is a question of yours. That you <laughs> I'm turning it around. It, it could be a lesson. It mm. could be a tool, a step, a rule. Maybe you mm. got another story you want to tell me, whatever. I know you threw it out. You threw it out initially, but what is it? that could could act as a catalyst for a more inclusive society? You know, this is going to sound really simplistic. When I was in the Navy, one of the things that we used to do often... Wait, wait. uh, You were in the Navy? Yeah, (laughs) yeah. It's it's not in your bio, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I was in the the Navy for 12 years. Wow. Uh, Yeah. I'm old. I've lived (laughs) lived a lot of life. But one of the things we used to do was we would have these meals together Uh where a bunch of us would just make food and then anybody who showed up showed up. I am a fervent believer 
in the power of food and story. <laughs> and if you can share a meal together with people, it's a little more difficult to demonize them. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So is it possible to, and this is something that, that um, my partner and I have been thinking about doing. We live in Chicago in, in a uh, really diverse neighborhood for Chicago. Uh-huh. And, you know, I don't know how much you know about Chicago, but uh, during the summertime, lots of streets, blocks get blocked off. You can call the fire department. They come out with a bouncy house, you know, and you have like a block party. <laughs> yep. And, in and, our neighborhood. Yep. Yeah. And we've been thinking about doing that, just asking neighbors if we set our tables, if we could do like a big potluck. Yeah. And just have people come. And this is, I, I, I want to be clear, this is really not my idea. I, I have a very a good colleague who did this as an art project, mm. right? She just set up, ta- she blocked off the street, she set up tables, uh, she had some food out, people started coming and sharing a meal and sharing stories. And that was a way of sort of gathering that seemed really successful to her. And what would that mean if you just if you just set out a table and, and just invited everybody on the block to bring a dish, right? And talk about the dish and what it, what's the importance of that dish in your culture, in your family, in your history. Yes. And, and use food as a way into those stories because that is such a common thing that we have. Yes. That we can share. Uh, and it's low stakes, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, bring Frito pie. <laughs> and let's talk about why you brought Frito pie. Do you, do you know what Frito pie is? I do not. I, I, and I bet listeners don't. If you're not from Texas, you probably don't know what Frito pie is. Uh, so Frito pie essentially is you buy a bag of Fritos. Oh, I... You buy a can of chili. <laughs> yeah, you buy some cheese, you mix all of that in the bag, and you stick it in the microwave for a little bit, and that's ch- that's Frito pie. Oh my gosh! <laughs> it is at, it will kill you, oh but it is God. really tasty. The description is killing me. <laughs> It'll kill you, but it's oh really tasty. Oh my gosh! Yeah, so that's Frito pie. Well, I guess you know two things. First of all, you culinary institute here you got that on your <laughs> Kendall College I mean there there you go and then the other thing it makes me think of is this you know this term that we've used so many times people use it break bread together yes yes right where does that come from it comes from that's right an offering that's and right I think that's a beautiful a beautiful example of something that we can do that is simple but also opens the door to conversation it's just one yeah absolutely yeah. I want to ask you about something, and this is going to go back to something you said earlier about um, showing up as Willa, not mm-hmm. as Willa, the education director, or Willa as this or that, but showing up as Willa. And so mm-hmm. this question pertains sort of to that idea. And so now I know that we all use words, and, and oftentimes the definitions to those particular words are slightly different from person to person. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, we all we all come to the table with a set of biases that we have right. that, oh, yes. that can pertain to words as well as other things. That's right. But if I were to ask you what it means to be authentic, how would you mm. describe that? And what does that look like for you? 
Ooh. I would say that it means showing up with my full self no matter where I am. And I would also say that that is an ongoing work in progress always. <laughs> I think no, no matter how, no matter how comfortable I am with who I am, there are places that demand more of part of me than other. Yeah. Or that I need to leave part of behind. And that is the nature, I think, of how we all function to a yeah. certain extent. The way that the way that I behave around my, you know, my relatives is not necessarily the way I would behave around the youth that I work with, which is not the way that I behave at a board meeting, right? You do that code switching. Oh, I was just gonna say it's code switching, exactly. All the time, all the time. And that does not mean inauthenticity, right? Right, right. But there are times when the mask gets, for me, it feels like the mask is a little too much. There are moments of opportunity when some of my hood self should have come out or yeah. some of, <laughs> some of the, the activist part of me uh, uh, that will call out something should have come out in a moment. Mm-hmm. And it didn't because of this mask, right? Because of that code switch that I've done. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm trying to make those moments less, but it's still a work. It's a work in progress. Yeah. I love that. Do you, uh, that you couch it like that work in progress, because I, I do think one of the things that I talk about in my work quite often is that this journey that we're on this, and I'm speaking of the journey of identity mm-hmm. is, one, is one that is constantly changing and evolving. Yes. And yet we don't often recognize that. That's right. Um, it doesn't stop. You don't get to a place and you go, oh, I'm done. I know who yeah. I am. Because the next, the next day something can happen that can change the way you perceive yourself or whatever it might That's be. Right. So I like this idea of the evolution of, of authenticity also applies as a, as a work in progress. That's, yeah. that's great. And, you know, that's probably the hardest lesson to teach youth. Oh, right? most certainly. Yes. <laughs> yes. That you will not always be this. Yes. And that there's so much more that you can yes. be and will be. Yes. Yeah. I, I have lots of students because of the nature of my, my own personal story being biracial. I have lots of mm-hmm. biracial students who come up to me are so perplexed about how they fit in, where they fit in. Some days they feel white, some days they feel black, some whatever. Yeah. And they're struggling with it and it's not much solace to them. But my, my answer is, of course, that it will it will continue to change. It will continue to evolve. That's and right. You just need to know that that's going to happen. Just be aware that that's a part of your journey. Okay. So. Okay. But there, I could cover so much ground with you and I could go back. There's so many things I didn't get to, but I, I want to ask a, a final question of you, which I ask of all my guests is, can you recommend a book, a movie or a play which has inspired you recently and why? Uh, well, the book, Teaching to Transgress, Bell Hooks. It is something I reread constantly and really has shaped who I am as a teacher and how I think about education and my role 
-hmm. in education as both a learner and a teacher. Mm -hmm. uh, so I highly recommend that book. It is something that I, I require all my staff to read. Excellent. A movie. You don't have to do all three. I mean, it's, if, it's, if there's something comes to mind, that's great. But I... <laughs> Well, the, the easy answer for movie is Coda. Oh, yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Uh, uh -huh. Because I had never seen anything like it. And yeah. because to sort of be immersed in that world. Delightful. And watch it uh, along with the brilliance of the performances, right? Yes, I agree. Uh, but I would also, I would also say West Side Story. It is one of my favorite musicals. Uh -huh. I was very skeptical when I understood that Spielberg was going to do it, but I think it is a really wonderful reimagining of what that musical was that honors the true spirit of what the original was and the use of Rita Moreno in that and giving her the song somewhere mm. made me weep. And then of course there's Ariana DeBose. And yeah. so, I mean, it was, I, I, I just thought it was such an incredible, incredible uh, experience for me. The play, if you haven't seen it, um, I would say you got to see it, How to Catch Creation by Christina Anderson. It's a play that we did pre-pandemic, which is probably 17 maybe or 18. It is a wonderful story. It's a wonderful uh, sort of Venn diagram of characters and stories that move in and out of time, but that really look at what it means to create, both create as an artist, uh, create as a human, create as a parent. Um, it's beautiful writing, incredible, incredible play. And it, it's the one play that any student who has ever seen it, if they see me, that's why they come to see me. They come and say, you work at the Goodman. I saw this play, How to Catch Creation. And no other play has ever affected students like that that I've had. So. Okay. Yeah, so those those would be my three. Well, thank you for those and for everything that yeah. you shared today. Thank you for this. Oh, this thank you so much for thinking really of me and inviting me for this. Thank you, Willa. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation, and as always, I invite you to send us your comments and suggestions. Our email is info at incognitotheplay.com. As a podcast listener myself, I can't tell you how many times I've heard the host implore listeners to leave a review, but now, as a host myself, I truly understand how important a review can be. Reviews help spread the word and can direct new listeners to the podcast, so please leave a review. Also, if you enjoyed what you heard, please share it with your friends, colleagues, and networks, both social and professional. It's a crowded podcast field out there. And hopefully we're bringing you content you enjoy and find value in. I really appreciate you listening. Thanks. <laughs>